Hello and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. This is your host, Nick Galetti, and on this episode, we have a very special guest. And this is an interview I've actually been talking about for quite a while now. It is with BYU scholar Tom Waymond. This interview is going to be fantastic for a couple of reasons, but in one particular reason I want you all to pay attention is because next year's study in the new Sunday School curriculum and the new Come Follow Me for Individuals and Families in the Church is going to be based on the New Testament. And like some of you, you may have had some struggles in decoding the New Testament English that comes to us 400 years uh, later, and uh, it's just not exactly super fluid. So what we have today is our guest, Tom Wayman, who is responsible for an upcoming volume being presented by BYU and Deseret Book. They did a joint printing of a New Testament translation essentially a modern-day version of the New Testament using the most up-to-date scholarship. It's also a study Bible, which is something that we're not super familiar with in the church, Uh, but it's got some great study hints, some great helps, and we're going to talk about it more in our interview. So here now is our interview with BYU scholar Tom Wayman. guest on this episode is Tom Waymond, who is going to present to us something that I hope we all have the patience to open up and, and study. Uh, he has written, actually written is not the right way to call it. It is a translation of the New Testament for Latter-day Saints. It's the study Bible with some great resources, and he's here to talk to us about not only what that book is, but how missionaries might be benefited by it. So welcome, Tom. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Nick. You are a... BYU professor? Yes, have been for 18 years. And how's that going? <laughs> uh, great, great. No, it's a, it's a great place to work and great resources and great opportunities. Awesome. So you used to be, as you said before we started, you used to do ancient scripture, but now you're doing Greek and Latin. Yeah, my training has always been New Testament studies. Okay. And so in ancient scripture, I taught uh, New Testament courses, and now I'll be teaching New Testament in Greek. So very little change, but uh, it still represents some some difference. Well, that's pretty relevant to this book project that you're doing with the New Testament because, well, just give us a brief history on how we have the New Testament. Yeah, in a, in big picture, um, we we have these manuscript copies that scribes start making about a hundred years after Jesus dies, and we get copies that are handwritten. And every scribe introduces new errors into that text, and they make new copies and send them out. And if you gather those all up, these ancient copies, if you will, we have about 5,500 of them in existence. Oh, okay. Wow. And one of the challenges is when you put them side by side, no two of them are exactly the same. So a scribe made an error in this verse, and a scribe made an error in this verse. And there's a whole science today about saying what is error and what is original. It's called text criticism, and it's a lot of what I do. It's trying to say, this was a scribe who just spelled that word wrong, or this is a scribe who added a word to try to make sense. And we try to identify that stuff. And is any of that like based on actual dating of the manuscript itself? Or it is, is. Okay. We date the handwriting. Handwriting styles change over time, and we try to find the earliest and, and best. And then any modern Bible has to say, okay, there's all of these differences, and I'm going to translate this single text and create a modern Bible that's usable. 
So it can't, it, it doesn't come from one manuscript. It no, comes from so no many Bible that, does. that there's not even really one Bible. No, in fact, the KJV that most missionaries would be using uh, represents nine manuscripts. Um, just nine of just the 5,500. Yeah, back then that was good. That was oh, a okay. real breakthrough. Today, uh, most use about 2,500. Okay. Uh, well, what about the history of the Latter-day Saints with the New Testament specifically, but also the King James Version? Yeah, I think it's a happenstance. Um, in um, eighteen in the eighteen thirties, um, Joseph Smith, eighteen twenty nine in particular, Joseph Smith buys a Bible and he buys one locally, and what they have on the shelf is is the KJV. I don't know that he ever made an overt decision. I want the KJV. It's a very good Bible. No criticism of that. But many Americans use the Geneva, and I would say that where he's at, KJV is a more predominant. And so, by chance, that's what we end up with. But Latter-day Saints early on use other Bibles. You have people coming from Germany using their German Bible. You have people from England, etc., using different Bibles. And I think many Latter-day Saints would find that a little bit disruptive, 1830s, 1850s, saying, hey, in Sunday school, you were reading a little bit different version. I think there was a more awareness that translation wasn't fixed, that there wasn't one single best Bible. As far as the official statement of the church regarding the King James Version of the Bible, that came in the mid-1900s, didn't it, as far as adopting it officially? 1867. Was it 1867? 1867. Brigham Young declares that that will be the Bible of the church, um, primarily as a result of the publication of the Joseph Smith translation. Okay. Um, He declares in Salt Lake that the Joseph Smith translation will not be the Bible of the church um, because we didn't own copyright and oversight of that text. And as a result, he says the King James Bible will be the Bible of the church. Okay. And so we still have a lot of Latter-day Saints at that time who have other Bibles and continue to use those. But primarily, we become a KJV church then. What is the benefit and maybe even the drawback of having that in place? It's been great. And I have to be a little bit critical here. In the late 20th century, America started to move away from the King James Version. And when many people served missions 20, 30 years ago, and we read a passage from the Bible, that was familiar to people. It is no longer that way. And so for a long time, we were part of America's Bible culture. They spoke like we did. We spoke like they did. They understood that. But if we read, you know, um, let him ask of God who who upbraideth not, many people will say, I don't think that's in the Bible. They just, those words are so foreign to them. So there has been a lot of value but I think we're seeing a, a lessened return on our investment there. Okay. Now, the I served in the South, in Louisiana, so I saw the Bible all the time. Yes. And this would be a, a more important thing, I think, to Bible-heavy places, to have this more modern translation. So what, though, is your inspiration, your motivation in endeavoring to change our minds on which Bible we should, not necessarily which Bible we should be reading, but why we should be looking at another translation. Why we maybe should supplement what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Mine grows out of a classroom experience. I came from graduate school having studied New Testament and was introduced to the NRSV in grad school. And so I felt that was a good translation, not better or worse, but a good one. And when I came to BYU first class, I started teaching KJV only And my students didn't understand the English in many times. There are a lot of words there that 
I was teaching English grammar to help them understand the English before we could even talk about meaning. And and this becomes more and more of a problem over time. At least I, I believe we're probably spending 40, 50% of classroom time trying to say, do you understand the English? And And so about a decade ago, I said to myself, I wonder if just I should do a new translation myself, see if maybe I could float it to my students as a you know, free PDF. And the project grew out of that interest to say, what would it look like if if you used a modern translation as a believing Latter-day Saint? So this took you 10 years or a little less than 10 years, maybe. Yeah, I'm about 10 years into it now. Wow. And this is not just a translation. It is a study Bible and we'll get into that. But let's Let's talk for a moment about the translation. I guess there's there's rules to translation. I mean, I my day job, I work a lot in language, and so I know those things, but not it's not very common knowledge as to what goes into making a translation, especially when you're talking a modern translation from something that was in the 1600s. Yeah, there's a lot of theoretical approaches to how to translate, and we kind of have them on a pendulum of loose translation, to what we might call literal translation today. And a literal translation like the KJV will go as far as saying that the Greek word the is the first one in the sentence, so it should be the first one in English, and the second one is this next word, and it will follow literally the Greek words in order. A loose translation will try to emphasize meaning over exact literalness, and there's value in both sides. A literalness tends to convey... The, the idea that I'm giving you exactly what they said without interpreting. But the problem is they're hard to read. Um, and that may, is one of the reasons KJV is hard to read. An interpretive translation, the farther end of the spectrum, is great because it tells you what things mean, but sometimes it fudges on exactly what was said. So what I the approach I took in this translation is I want it to be highly readable. That was one of my main goals. And it and, is. Oh, thanks. I, it's incredibly I readable. In fact, I read a few chapters and I was like, whoa, that was fast. And I oh, know good. that it would have taken me much longer in the King James Version. In that, that verse by yeah. verse kind of approach. The other thing I did um, about halfway through the project is read it all out loud after it's all translated. Okay. And and that felt really curious to me myself, but as I'm in a locked room reading it out loud, <laughs> that changed some of the dynamics because this is a spoken text. These right. these folks are trying to capture spoken. It was an oral tradition, and so I um I tried to I tried to represent that. The other thing that is hard as a translator, for example, Mark's grammar is not good. Uh, he's not a high level writer. Uh, the author of Hebrews is. And I hope the translation, you feel some of that, that the Mark's very basic. I would guess sixth, seventh grade writing level. Um, Hebrews is is just beginning of graduation of college, or high school rather. So someone almost college level Greek. And they're, they're quite good comparatively. And so I wanted to capture those difference and not create this exact harmonious voice throughout it. One of the things that you're book goes into, as I said before, is a study Bible. And part of that is an introduction to each book Yes, where there are essentially explanations into the scholarship of who actually wrote these things. Just because it's called the Gospel of Matthew, we don't know if it really was Matthew and so on. But there might even be some issue with someone saying, wait a second, Mark is not great grammar? You mean this this apostle is kind of dumb or, you know? Sure. I mean, that is that 
that's not what you're saying, but it certainly can come alarming. across that way. Yeah. Um, it can be. If you take it in a sense, does are the words themselves in all of the way he presents it inspiration? So we would expect inspiration to be grammatically correct. Um, the challenge with that is in every gospel, if you start to think about it, what you're reading on the page, you clearly have sayings of Jesus, but then the storyline is told by that writer. And that's where Mark comes in. When we read Mark's wording, Jesus went up to Galilee, he'll sometimes conjugate his verbs wrong. And that's where you see it. In the sayings of Jesus, the, the quality is different. And, and that's fascinating as a believer that Jesus might have had much better grammar than the people who recorded it. That's not surprising. Fishermen might not have the best <laughs> um, best grammar there. Well, that's actually one of the things that I was noticing. When I went through and was reading, it felt like, I don't want to say a novel, but it felt because it wasn't the verse breakdown. It was by paragraphs and so on. But when I got to the parts where it was the words of Jesus, it felt more King James mm-hmm. than, than it, the rest of it did. But that also helped me understand these are Jesus's words. Like it, there was something about that approach that helped me see the story and the quotes and understand the difference because sometimes we think that they're one and the same. Yeah, and I, I think the King James obscures that. There are no quotation marks in the King right. James. And so you don't always know, oh, who is this said or spoken language or is this reported? And, and I, by recovering that in this translation, uh, hopefully you'll be able to see that very clearly. Yeah. So as a missionary, would this be something that you would anticipate them bringing with them on discussions as a way to be more conversant with other faiths? Or is that going to open too many weird doors? I don't think it will open weird doors in a sense. I don't think there's an awkwardness there. Most of the most of the evangelical community will be reading the NIV. Baptists will still be reading the KJV. And um, you'll find a, a smattering of NRSV out there. I had started it with the original goal of increasing scripture literacy and to increase religious vocabulary. And it would be, I think, eye-opening. I would have loved to have known this as a missionary, that, that people talk about Jesus differently, not in the sense of different beliefs, but they use different language when they talk about um, the healings or, or the resurrection. There's different verbiage. Yeah. And by studying, I think, with this Bible alongside their KJV, they would be prepared when somebody says, hey, um, I don't understand that language that you're reading. This is how my Bible says it, that there's a familiarity there as they as they sit down and talk about it. When we had Ben Spackman on, he talked about this concept of other faiths using the Bible in solo scriptura, meaning that they, they felt the Bible was literally the word of God. It was perfect. It was the be all end all, that kind of idea. And yet they do still somehow ironically accept other translations. So when you're reading through this, I mean, does was part of it that we were giving Latter-day Saints this idea that don't break it down by verse. This was paragraphs. This was chapters even, or might even be not fully correct, but just this idea of being able to see scriptures more as a story than a law book. Absolutely. Um, the versification happens in the 12th and 13th century, those type of chapter breaks. And it's very disruptive to the story. Sometimes they're not made um, very well. You'll see a couple times in the translation where there's a note that says, you know, in your Bible, the KJV, this is chapter 9, verse 1, but it's really chapter 8, verse 53. And it's been broken improperly, and verses have been broken improperly to create this 
like everything's a one sentence long. And uh, no, um, the first five, I, I think it's the first eight verses of Ephesians are one sentence. So how do you break that? And so yeah. it tries to recover this sense of it's more delivered in a paragraph type structure. Well, and it changes the implied meaning, right? Because sometimes mm-hmm. when we go in and as we're missionaries, we go in to teach a principle and we read the one verse yes. that gets us to where we want to go. And in fact, that's it, just a real small A subordinate snippet. clause to the previous verse. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so part of what I see happening as we go through and study this is that we understand concepts that connect to one another. For example, this even happened in the Book of Mormon that Jacob chapter four and five were originally one chapter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes we don't know the meaning behind the olive tree allegory in chapter five because we don't realize Chapter four is the, chapter four is what it was explaining, what it was applying to, and so I think that some of that is what we see when we look through this translation of the Bible. Let's get a little bit more into the study hints, though the study Bible part of it. Absolutely, what, that's a concept that is completely foreign in Latter Day Saint scripture study, but a lot of faiths have study Bibles. So, what is that to introduce the concept, and how do you use it? I think um, I think most Latter Day Saints will find it a friendly concept when they realize that. Our footnotes were part of Bible culture in America, late 19th century, when computers start to be around and people are able to say, let me look up every place in the Bible where camel appears. And then they put that as a footnote. So now you have all the verses to camel. And a lot of our footnotes are generated by that kind of early computer interest. Let's put all the texts in and start to find parallels. Was that 1981? That Was that the edition? 79 for the okay. triple and... 79 for the Bible, 81 for the triple. Okay. So, yes, absolutely. And it's a great moment. Footnotes. We can compare <laughs> things. And there's helps. They they offer these stunning helps. Hebrew, Greek, JST. And Bible translations come a lot farther since the 81 edition um, in offering historical information. Who's Pilate? What did he do? Um, we offer maps. Down, I offer maps in in mind, so you understand where are these places at. But one of the things I think most people will benefit in this study Bible is that I've taken a computer program. They have at BYU Word Cruncher. We plug in all the text and we say, show us every single three word phrase that's the same in any of these texts. And so the footnotes for the first time ever have all of the intertextual echoes from the Book of Mormon in the New Testament and vice versa. So I I believe this is the closest thing ever in print to having every single time the Book of Mormon references New Testament language. Okay. And they'll be able to find that. And it's great because the New Testament says it one way, the Book of Mormon will will expand um, and interpret, etc. I think there's a lot of information to be had there. And the Doctrine and Covenants is the same way. It's I, I have the ebook version, mm-hmm. so I don't know the size of the print version. How, how thick is this going to be? Um, last I saw, it's about an it's about an inch on the back. So okay. I haven't seen it fully bound yet. Okay, but it's um, it's about five hundred pages, and uh, they're using a pretty light paper. Well, it from the ebook version, it almost looks like sometimes that there's more footnote than there is. There are in places. Text. Yes, there are in places. That's, so. Yeah. So how much of those 10 years in the translation process or in putting this together was on the footnotes versus the actual translation? Probably about half. Okay. Probably about half. I you know doing the, I mentioned that program and putting the text in it would generate for example 
over 2,000 references between the Book of Mormon and the, and the New Testament. And I had to check every single one of those. And that took forever. Yeah. And it did it for the Doctrine and Covenants. And we did it for the Hebrew Bible too. So it has all of the Hebrew Bible references. I think a lot of Latter-day Saints will be surprised to learn that when Jesus speaks, he almost always alludes to Scripture. It's almost always the Hebrew Bible. And they're there in the notes. It will say, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 8 here. So hopefully they'll they'll see that. That's pretty pretty incredible. Yeah, it's fun to it's fun to see. Yeah. This is also no surprise. It's coming out near the start of the New Testament year in church study. Yes. I assume that was purposeful. Yes, but time consuming <laughs> to meet a deadline, you know. It sounded <laughs> yeah. great at one time, but yeah, meeting that deadline. So is the yeah. hope that this will be studied side by side in gospel doctrine class and the youth classes even? I would hope that Latter-day Saints would have them side by side. So they have the comfort and the familiarity of their King James and the the hopefully new information readability of this Bible. I hope it can get people excited about reading the Bible again. Sometimes this is really hard as a religion professor for years. When a student comes in, you just wait of saying, oh man, I've got to read the Bible. This is terrible. And <laughs> I'm thinking, uh, I've spent my life doing this and, and you can't stand it. I, and I think a lot of it's, they don't, it's not easy to read. And yeah. I hope we recover some of that excitement. It is absolutely easy to read. And what's interesting about it too is almost like after you go to Nauvoo and you appreciate church history in a different way or you go to Turkey and you see some of these sites and you seem to appreciate there's more realism to it. Reading this version felt more real to me. Oh, great. Whereas it it felt like sometimes with the King James Bible, again, I was reading some type of text that, again, was more like law code than it was someone telling what was going on. It It feels like in the King James Version, I should say, I'm looking for the doctrine to prove my point, to get something out of, to, to you know, draw a, a specific principle. Whereas this, I'm getting a story, I'm getting impressions, I'm getting the feel for how these people experienced the gospel rather than what they were trying to tell us in a prescribed, do this kind of way. It's a very different way of approaching it. It is. I, I try to explain it to my students by saying it's kind of like trying to understand Jesus through Shakespeare. Okay. And and that really, a colleague of mine pointed that out to me a while back. This is Shakespearean language, and we're trying to read Jesus. And Jesus didn't speak that way. He spoke very ordinary um, Hebrew, uh, Aramaic. And So that actually brings up another question. This was from Greek. Yes. So is there, are we assuming that there are some Hebrew and Aramaic versions of the New Testament? It would be nice. We don't have them okay. at the current time. We do know that when, as this is an academic point, that when Mark quotes or Matthew quotes Jesus' sayings, those sayings have Aramaic markers, language markers in oh, okay. them. But when Mark tells the story, Jesus got on a boat and crossed over the Sea of Galilee, that's composition Greek. Um, so we, we do know they are, somewhere they have them translated. We just have never seen those. So we have to assume that the Greek versions are fairly true. Yes, so we have to assume they're the closest thing we can currently get to the actual words of Jesus. Wow. When when Mark or, or Matthew quotes Jesus and they say Talitha kum or they say, you know, Ephatha, those are Aramaic words. But unfortunately, we just don't have those manuscripts yet. Okay. Someday, maybe. <laughs> so again, let's let's refocus this to the missionary that, that's either preparing to go, maybe even come home from their mission. 
And what, what way do you see them using this as part of missionary work? I think it will increase their Bible literacy. I hope exponentially. I hope that will happen. I hope they'll realize that in studying and preparing the depth of intertextual, how, how related Scripture is to itself, and I hope it will generate excitement. Um, I, I really do. I sense some of the passion of the Book of Mormon is it's a readable narrative. And I hope to recover some of that for the Bible. It's gotten pretty pushed to the side of late, in my opinion. I, I totally agree. And one of the things that I think some of the people might be interested in, in, in discovering is we often use certain passages in the Bible as part of, at least for me, I was in the discussions era. So I, me too. I, <laughs> I had very specific verses that I quoted from, and I had made a practice of going back and looking at those to see how closely what I taught is fitting still yeah. <laughs> with this new translation. But uh, so there are some passages that are, I would argue are controversial, maybe oh, sure. even some of Peter and Paul's discussions about the role of women in the church. Yes. And um, at this last fair conference, there was some discussion about that topic specifically. But how did you feel that some of those controversial issues that maybe have developed over time from a reading of the New Testament may be answered because of this translation? Um, first of all, I dealt with him head on in the notes. I was very transparent. Um, Paul is, for example, very rude in one verse. And I, I, I put a note, this is Paul at his very rudest. <laughs> um, he, and I want to be up front. Um, I, when I, when he de- they deal with how women should behave in the church, I have a note. These are cultural um, issues that they're facing at the time and are not to be applied in the modern era. So I, I realize I've gotten out on a limb there. But I've said what I really believe as an academic, what these things are. They talk about how slaves should behave in the church. And people need to understand in the first century, you have a scenario where a slave has converted and his master is converted. And potentially the slave can be the bishop of the master. And that really throws the social order off. But those things should not be used today to endorse slavery and other things. So I've tried to be very transparent and not dodge. Um, and that can be Good and bad. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how that see goes. How that comes out. Well, this is being published by the BYU Religious Studies Center yes. and Deseret Book. Yes. So people will be able to go to those sites when? I have been told November of this okay. year. It may be as early as early November, but November is the month that it's planned. Okay. Good Christmas present. Yes, that'd be great. <laughs> this could be the new family Bible, right? Um, it's very readable for families. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm. Yeah. I've got. 10, 8, 7-year-olds, and we're trying to get them into scripture study every day. And it's not the English they're reading in school, and it's very hard and it's discouraging. Yes. So this can be a matter of helping them see the Bible is not something so scary. I hope so. Yeah, I think they'll, I think as a family, reading the Gospels would be a very different experience in this. Find it very readable. And it'll go, I don't want to say it'll go quicker, but they'll find that they'll finish a chapter in the same time it took them to read five verses because they're not stumbling yes. over all these words they don't even know. And adding EST on the end of their verbs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Or a TH. Yes. Listeneth. All right. Well, uh, I appreciate you coming in and, and telling us about this. And I want to encourage people when this comes out, and hopefully we'll release this pretty close to when that comes out. But uh, this is something that we should all take a look at and study from. It's been helpful to me in the short amount of time that I've been studying it and reading from it. It poses a lot of questions that help get us thinking about how to apply the scriptures in our day and and to understand that there's 
both descriptive and prescriptive scriptures that we read. Yes. Sometimes it's hard to see that in the King James Version. So when's the Old Testament coming out, I should say? Um, my wife going to take 20 years probably. My wife says I have a moratorium on that, but I've been secretly oh. working on it. So hopefully she won't <laughs> listen to the podcast. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's a mammoth task. It is. Yes, it is. It's the largest book of scripture we have. So By triple. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. In fact, I think it's all of the other ones combined still don't make up the size that's probably about right yeah that's (laughs) probably close all right well thank you again tom wayman for coming in and uh, we'll put a link as soon as we have it on our page at ldsmissioncast.com thanks for having me now so i want you to stay connected to the social media outlets for latter-day saint mission cast primarily facebook and what we're going to be doing is we're going to be announcing when his book is finally released and I have an advanced copy of it, and I have to say that it has made my study of the New Testament a far more rewarding experience. And I would highly encourage you to get a copy for yourself to study from. Of course, those of you that might be listening and serving a mission, we hope that you talk to your mission president first to find out his take on this and whether or not it would be something that would be appropriate for you in your missionary service. But for anybody else, please, Take a look at this. It's being sold at Deseret Book and through those outlets. So please check it out and get your hands on a copy and see for yourself just how much more rewarding your study of the New Testament will be with all the new exciting changes after General Conference, this new curriculum, this opportunity to do more study at home. You're going to need some extra tools, and this is a great one to use. So, We'll see you again in a couple weeks for our next episode of the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. Our guest will be return senior missionary Jeffrey Bradshaw, who's also a scholar and who served his mission in the DR Congo and has some incredible stories to share, as well as some inspiration that he gained from his service in the heart of Africa. So please stay tuned. Thank you again for listening to the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast.